0: Welcome to the show, folks. It's been a while, and it's good to be back. This session will be a catch-up session, kind of like the first day of school after summer vacation. I want to go back a few sessions and review the drama that's unfolding, not only to refresh our memories and catch up, because it has been a while, but also to take in the majesty of the overall design of what's actually unfolding before us. This is amazing what's happening. Quite a few sessions ago in John chapter 7, Jesus surprised everyone when he showed up in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. Everyone there knew the religious leaders were seeking to kill Jesus, so they were wondering if he would even show up. And if he did, then what? Well, not only did he show up, but when he showed up, he marched straight up into the temple courts to teach. And he didn't just teach a turn-the-other-cheek sermon like he had before. He taught that his authority came from God his father. He taught that his origin was from God his father. He taught that after a little while he would depart and go back to God his father. And then he said, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. The promise of the living water, just as it did for the woman at the well, folks, symbolized the permanent and continual life-giving refreshment of God's presence himself, the Holy Spirit, permanently infused into the inner self, the heart, the soul, the belly of the believer. And the religious leaders must have been fit to be tied listening to this, because from their self-absorbed perspective, here's what they heard. They heard, hey, everyone, you don't need these religious leaders anymore. Come to me. And after you do that, you won't even have to come to the temple anymore because I'm going to make you the temple. Before Jesus came, if you wanted to drink in God's presence in a personal way, you had to travel from wherever you were and go to the temple in Jerusalem. That's where the light of God's presence was in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And even then you couldn't just march into the Holy of Holies, the inner room where the light of God's presence was. Only the high priest could do that in certain times of year. You could only reach God through the rituals and the authority of the priesthood. And that's the way it was for a very long time. That's what the religious leaders were used to. You came to the temple and then you came to them. But here's Jesus standing in the middle of the Jerusalem temple and he's telling everybody it's not going to be like this anymore. The God of this temple, this is what Jesus is saying. The God of this temple is my father. I came from him. My authority is from him. And I'm telling you that you don't have to get to my father through the religious leadership anymore. You come to me. And when you do that, I'll make it so that you won't even have to keep coming back to the temple anymore because I'm going to make all of you the temple. The living water that you come here to get, I'm going to send it home with you in your body in your fleshly tent, in your tabernacle, and God will permanently be in you. So the religious leaders must have been going, (laughs) when they heard this. So the religious leaders send out the temple officers, the temple guard, to arrest Jesus and bring him into their chambers. They wait, and then the officers come back empty-handed while Jesus is still outside teaching. The leaders become livid and say, what the heck are you doing? Why didn't you arrest him? They said, it's because no man has spoken like this man before. So then the leaders accused the temple officers of being deceived and misled themselves, and then they gathered together a second time to plot and scheme and try to figure out what are we going to do? It turns out, though, that Nicodemus was among them. Nicodemus was the religious leader who approached Jesus in John chapter 3, where we have the famous John 3.16 recorded and what it means to be born again. So he's there among the leaders, and as they're scrambling around trying to pick up their marbles off the floor, he spoke up and said, look, guys, wait a minute. Do our laws convict a man before giving him a hearing? But they lashed back and said, are you deceived too? Jesus is from Galilee, and you search the scripture and see for yourselves that no prophet ever came out of Galilee. Like, what's that got to do with anything? So the leadership debated among themselves until they got tired of debating. It got dark, and everybody had to go home. Their problem hadn't been resolved, but they're thinking maybe it'll go away. The day's over. The Feast of Tabernacles is over. Let's see what happens. Maybe he'll be gone tomorrow. But then the very next day, as early as dawn, according to John chapter 8, Jesus marched right back up into the middle of the hornet's nest and started teaching again in the temple. Well, this put the religious leadership over the edge. So instead of relying on the temple guard to arrest him, they concocted a scheme that they thought would force Jesus into saying something in front of the people that would expose him as a fraud and justify his immediate arrest and public execution right then and right there. And one of the best ways to do this, folks, you see this in politics. You create a no-win scenario for your opponent so that no matter how they respond to it, it will contradict something that they've said earlier. And Jesus had been teaching that he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, while simultaneously teaching that he didn't come into the world to condemn it, but to save it. If you're a Pharisee, or practically anybody who doesn't know about the cross, that sounds like a contradiction. How do you save the world and not condemn it, while fulfilling the law at the same time? So the religious leaders thought they had him in a contradiction, so they set up the trap. While Jesus was teaching in the middle of the temple in broad daylight before all the world to see, they threw this woman down on the ground before him and said, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law says we should stone her to death. What do you say? Jesus stooped down on the ground, and he began writing something in the dirt with his finger. The religious leaders kept asking him, What do you say? What do you say? Do we stone her or not? Then Jesus stood back up and said, Whoever among you is sinless, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped back down and continued writing on the ground with his finger. The Bible doesn't tell us what he was writing, but whatever it was, the religious leaders could read it. And one by one, they all backed off, one at a time. Jesus stood back up and said, Woman, where are your accusers? Has no man condemned you? She answered, No, man, Lord. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And then knowing what everyone was thinking, even though the religious leaders were slimy little rats framing Jesus up like this, it poses a good question and sort of a conundrum that everybody was probably thinking, and Jesus knew this. This woman, despite how she was set up, She was caught in the act of adultery, and according to the Bible, adultery was punishable by death. And that wasn't just religious ritualism that had been abused by the religious leaders. That was actually the way God wanted it. God approved of the death penalty against the breaking of marriage vows. And yet, here's Jesus, the one who claimed he came from God, the one who claimed his authority was from God. This same Jesus is now telling a woman caught in adultery, I don't condemn you go and sin no more. And the people had to be thinking, how is this biblically, legally permissible? She deserved to die. How can Jesus claim to be from God and not condemn this woman? And knowing that's what they were thinking, Jesus said to everybody, it's because I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus would soon take upon himself her sin and accept condemnation on her behalf, fulfilling the last letter of the law while simultaneously not condemning her. Now the religious leaders are still trying to catch Jesus in a contradiction, and they remembered him earlier saying something to the effect that he never testified of himself. So they said, wait a minute, wait a minute, you can't say you're the light of the world. You said you don't testify about yourself. You only say what God wants you to say. And Jesus said, I never said I don't testify about myself. I said that I never testify on my own accord. Everything I say is what my father wants me to say. And it's true. And my father also testifies about me. And they said, really, where is your father? Jesus said, you know, my father, as little as you know me. If you knew me, you would know my father. I am going away and you will look for me and die in your sin. Where I am going, it is not possible for you to come, because you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. That's why I told you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Then they said to him, Who are you anyway? Jesus said, I am exactly what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and to judge and condemn. But he who sent me is true, and I will tell the world only the things that I have heard from him. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will realize then that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself but only as my Father has taught me. And he who sent me is ever with me. My Father has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. And then as he said all of this, Jesus knew that many in the crowd were believing him. So instantly he shifted his focus away from the religious leaders and onto those who were believing him and said, If you continue to abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples and you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. But then the religious leaders said, We are descendants of Abraham. Abraham is our father. And we've never been in bondage to anyone, so what do you mean, make us free? Jesus said, anybody who sins is a slave to sin. But if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. If you were Abraham's children, then you would do the works of Abraham. But you seek to kill me, a man who has done nothing but tell you the truth, which I've heard from God. Abraham wouldn't be seeking to kill me, so you aren't doing the deeds of Abraham. You're doing the deeds of your father. Then they said, we were not born of fornication like you. We have one father, even God. And then Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. I didn't come on my own authority. He sent me. Why don't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And the lust of your father, which is to kill me, is what you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and doesn't abide in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own and does what is completely natural for him, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's why you don't believe me. It's because I tell you the truth. Which of you can convict me of any sin? And if I say the truth, why don't you believe me? He that is of God hears God's words. So you don't hear God's words because you are not of God. Then they said, aren't we right when we say that you're a Samaritan and that you have a demon? And Jesus said, I don't have a demon. I honor my father and you dishonor me. I don't seek my own glory. There is one who looks after that. He seeks my glory and he is the judge. But truly I say to you, if a man keeps what I'm saying, he shall never see death. Then they said, Well, now we know you have a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophets are dead. But you say if a man keeps what you're saying, he shall never see death? So are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, or the prophets who were dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honors me, of whom you say he is your God. You don't know him and have never known him, but I do. If I should say that I don't know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he did see it and was glad. Then they said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, before Abraham ever was, I am. And finally they got it. He was timeless, existing in the eternal now, even before Abraham was ever born. That's how he knew Abraham, and by using the phrase, I am, which he had repeatedly done in his conversation, if you'll notice that, they knew he was claiming to be the voice from the burning bush that Moses saw. So they immediately picked up stones to kill him right then and right there, but Jesus managed to hide himself somehow and disappear in the midst of the crowd and got out of there. And folks, I don't know how you hide yourself in a crowd when everyone in the crowd is looking at you. When the crowd is there because of you, how do you use the crowd to hide yourself when you're the center of attention? This is the second time we see something like this in the scripture. I can't prove it, but I tend to believe, looking at it the way it's worded, that Jesus slipped into a hyperspace. It happened before when the people of Nazareth led him up to a cliff to throw him off of it. And right before they got him to the edge of the cliff, somehow... He slipped by them, and they didn't know where he went or what happened to him. Well, how do you do that when you've got a cliff on one side of you, and on the other side is everyone who's there to push you off of it? But anyway, whether he slipped into a hyperspace or just managed to hide himself in the crowd, he got out of there and left the temple. And all of that's recorded in John chapter 8. In John chapter 9, Jesus ran into a guy who had been blind from his birth. And according to Jesus, he was born blind so that the works of God would be made to manifest in him at this point in history. So this isn't just a random healing. This was a predestined healing for ordained before the foundation of the world. And when Jesus healed him, instead of placing his hand over the man's eyes and making him able to see again something that he had done before, he did something special this time. He wanted to give this man his eyesight back, but he wanted to make a statement using symbolism. The first thing he did, he spat on the ground, and the ground was always a symbol of the cursed earth, the curse of sin. In John chapter 8, he wrote into the ground with his finger, probably writing the Ten Commandments before asking if anyone there could be called sinless. Well, now in John chapter 9, he's spitting on the ground. After spitting on the ground, he made clay out of the mud he created, and then placed this clay over the man's eyes. Now, if you pay attention to what Jesus has been saying, you can almost predict where he's going with this. This man was physically born blind, but all of us are born blind spiritually. And it's the curse of sin that all of us inherit from our birth. And it makes us blind to spiritual things. So Jesus replicates our spiritual condition when he places a symbol of the curse of sin onto the man's eyes who was born blind. And then Jesus tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, which by interpretation means sent. This would symbolically represent the cleansing and baptism of the Holy Spirit, the living water. So he went and he did this. And then he came out of the pool and then was able to see. And he had never been able to see before. This was something totally new for him. He was born blind. So with this new ability, everybody that knew him could tell he was different. So they kept asking him, what happened to you? And he told them. When they asked him who put the clay on his eyes and who told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, he just said, some guy named Jesus. And they asked, well, where is he? And he would say, I don't know. I don't know where he is. So the people who knew this guy brought him to the religious leaders because a lot of people did know who Jesus was. And I love this conversation. This guy, for all we know, was not a religious man, but his eyesight was healed after doing just one thing that Jesus told him to do, go wash in the pool of Siloam. He did it, and now he can see. And that's all there is to this story. That's all he has to say to anybody. He doesn't know who Jesus is, but the religious leaders do, and they're not happy about this. The first thing they found out was that this event happened on a Sabbath day, so that set them off. And before they asked this fellow any questions about how this miracle happened, they wanted him to know first that this man Jesus, who did this, was not of God. The evidence of this was that he worked on a Sabbath day by creating clay from the mud. But as they said this, it generated a debate among the leaders. Some of them wondered how a sinful man working on the Sabbath day could do such miracles if he wasn't from God. So they asked the guy who had been healed, what do you think of this guy, Jesus? And the guy thought about it and said, I think he's a prophet. Well, the religious leaders didn't even like that. And then they started to wonder if this healed man wasn't a fraud. So they summoned his parents to see if he had really been born blind. And when the parents got there, the leaders asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? And if so, how is it that he can now see? And his parents said, We know that this is our son, and we know that he was born blind. By what means he now sees, we do not know. Or by who it was that opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, you ask him, and let him speak for himself. So they summon up this guy again. And by now, he's getting irritated with these religious leaders. They ask him the same questions all over again about how he was born blind, about what Jesus did with the clay, what he told him to do in the pool of Siloam. And this guy says, I've already told you all this. He put clay on my eyes, told me to wash in the pool of Siloam. I washed in the pool. Now I can see. The end. What do you want from me? And they told him, well, we don't want you giving credit to Jesus for this. You give the credit to God. Give God the praise. This man, Jesus, he's a sinner. And the guy said, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. All I know is that before I was blind, now I can see. That's it. Then they said to him, well, tell us, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And the guy said, oh my gosh, seriously? We're going to go through this again? I told you already, but you wouldn't listen. So why are you asking me again? Are you interested now? Now you're ready to listen? Do you want to become his disciples too? And the religious leaders picking up on his sarcasm said, no, we're disciples of Moses. You're the one who's a disciple of Jesus. We're disciples of Moses because we know that God spoke to Moses, but we don't know whose voice is speaking to Jesus or where he came from or anything about him. And the guy said, well, isn't that a marvelous thing? Here we have a man who has opened my eyes, eyes that were blind from my birth, and yet you don't know where he came from or anything about him. That's amazing. You can see nothing, but I can see fine. Now, how did that happen? And before the religious leaders could respond, he continued and said, Yes, I know God does not hear sinners, but God does hear those who worship him and do his will, correct? So how could this man Jesus be doing what he's doing? For since the world began, it has never been heard of or reported from anybody anywhere that a man gave sight to a man who had been blind from his birth. If this man Jesus were not of God, he could do nothing. Well, I don't think the religious leaders were used to being lectured like this before. So they ripped into this guy and said, You were born in sin from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, and you presume to teach us? And they threw him out and banished him from the synagogues. Jesus heard about it. And caught up with him and asked him, Do you believe and trust in the Son of God? And the man said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe and trust in him? And Jesus said, You have seen him, and it is he who is now talking with you. And the man, the man said, Lord, I do believe and trust in you. And the man worshiped him right there. And then Jesus told him, It's because of judgment that I came into this world, so that those who cannot see might be able to see, and so that those who think they see might be made blind. But then the religious leaders caught up with them both and said to Jesus, Are we blind also? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, but because you say you can see, your guilt remains. Jesus continued speaking according to John chapter 10 and said, Truly I say to you, He who doesn't enter through the door into the sheepfold but climbs up some other way is a thief and a robber. But he who does enter through the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. But a stranger they will not follow, but will flee from him instead, because they don't know the voice of strangers. And then explaining this parable to those who didn't understand, Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me were thieves and robbers, and the sheep did not hear them. I am the door, and if any man enters through me, he shall be saved, and shall go out and find pasture. The thief only comes to rob, kill, and destroy. I come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But he who is just a hired servant, who merely serves for wages, who is neither the shepherd nor the owner of the sheep, when he sees the wolf coming, he deserts the sheep. Runs away, and the wolf chases them and scatters the sheep. The hired servant runs away because he's just a hired servant and doesn't really care for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my sheep. As the Father knows me, so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And there are other sheep that I have which are not of this fold of the present. I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore does my Father love me, because I laid down my life, that I might take it again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. And then again, as usual, after Jesus spoke, there was a division among the religious leaders for this teaching. Many of them said, he has a demon, and he's crazy. Why do you keep listening to him? But others said, these are not the words of him who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And that concludes John chapter 10. Then in chapter 10 of Luke, continuing with the synchronized chronology, Jesus then recruited 70 new additional disciples and sent them out the same way he sent out the first 12. But when these 70 came back, they were stunned at how easily demons could be dealt with. And they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said, that's no surprise. You know how fast lightning moves from the sky to the ground? That's how fast I saw Satan fall from heaven. And behold, I have given you power to tread on serpents and scorpions, idioms for different kinds of demons, and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. But don't rejoice over the fact that the spirits are subject to you. Don't get a big head over this, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, Father, thank you. Thank you that you have hidden these things from the so-called wise and intellectual, and instead you have revealed them to babes, for it seemed good in your sight to do so, Father. And then speaking aloud to be heard by everyone who was there, Jesus said, All things are delivered to me from my Father. No man knows who the Son is but the Father, and no man knows who the Father is but the Son, and those to whom the Son will reveal him. And then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings desired and longed to see the things which you see and hear the things which you hear. And it was about that time that a certain expert in the Mosaic law stood up and testing Jesus, he said, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, Good, you have answered correctly. Do that and you'll have eternal life. But then immediately the law expert felt convicted. So in order to justify himself, he said, well, who's my neighbor? Jesus said, well, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among thieves, which stripped him of his clothes and wounded him and left him half dead. And it just so happens just by chance that there came down a certain priest that way and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And then likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, he came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, when he came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. So he went to him, bound up his wounds, poured oil and wine, and set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him there. And the next day, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever you spend more than that, when I come back, I will repay you. Now, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him that fell among the thieves? And he said, The one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said, Go and do the same. And then later on, as the day settled, Jesus entered into a certain village, where a certain woman named Martha received him into her house, And she had a sister named Mary which sat at Jesus' feet, and she heard his every word. But Martha was cumbered about by the busyness and urgency of serving Jesus, and seeing Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, she came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve you alone? Make her help me. But Jesus answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but it's this one thing which is most needed, and Mary has chosen that good thing, which shall not be taken away from her. And then after Mary had spent time at Jesus's feet, Jesus himself got somewhere alone to spend time at his father's feet, according to Luke chapter 11. After praying privately for a while, one of his disciples came up to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray like John taught his disciples to pray. So Jesus gave him a template example. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but it's just a template example. Just simple, understandable words in your own language, addressing God with reverence and admiration, asking for the kingdom to come, asking for his will, asking for daily needs, and to keep the conscience clear, confess sin and shortcomings. Ask for forgiveness and let God know you've forgiven others of their sins against you because it's all forgiven with the same blood of Jesus. It all gets covered on the same cross. Ask God to shield us from temptation, deliver us from evil. And that's just a template to follow. You can personalize that and expound upon it all you want, but that's it. But then to drive the point home, how valuable this is, Jesus said, look, suppose you had a friend who visited you at midnight after a long journey and you had nothing to give him to eat. So you went to another friend's house to borrow three loaves and he said to you, Leave me alone. The door is locked and my children are with me in bed. I say unto you, which is King James' way of saying, I tell you what, even though he won't rise at first because he is your friend and because of the importance of why you're there, he will rise and give you as much as you need. That is, if he's your friend. Well, I say unto you, when you pray to my father, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For every one that asks receives, and he that seeks finds, and to him that knocks it shall be opened. If a son should ask for bread from any of you that is a father, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent? Or if he should ask for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? Of course not. Well, if you then, being evil as you are, know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more shall your heavenly Father give to them that ask him? And just as Jesus was speaking right then and there, a religious leader, a Pharisee, actually came up and invited Jesus to dinner. So this was one of the few religious leaders who didn't want him arrested and put to death, at least we don't think so but he was still a legalistic religious leader, so it was only a matter of time before Jesus said or did something that wouldn't meet with his approval. And sure enough, just as soon as they got to the Pharisee's house and reclined to eat, the Pharisee couldn't help but notice that Jesus hadn't gone through the ceremonial hand-washing ritual. And Jesus, knowing what he was thinking, said, You Pharisees make sure everything on the outside is clean, but inside you're full of greed, robbery, extortion, malice, and wickedness. You fools, don't you know that he who made the outside made the inside also? Instead of greed, robbery, extortion, malice, and wickedness, why don't you give to the poor of those things which are within, and behold, all things would be clean and purified to you, both outside and inside. But every act of kindness and mercy that you do is for show and ritualistic legalism. You tithe mint and rue and every little herb, but disregard and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. But boy, you love the best seats in the synagogues, and you love to be greeted and bowed down to in the public marketplaces. You're like unmarked graves, which are not seen, and men walk over them without being aware of the rot and decay that's beneath their feet. Well, one of the experts in the Mosaic Law was there, and got his feathers ruffled up and said, Now wait just a minute, teacher. In saying these things, you insult us. And Jesus said, well, woe to you too. For you load men down with oppressive burdens that are hard to bear, and you won't even gently touch those burdens with one of your own fingers. Out of guilt, you rebuild and repair the tombs of the prophets, whom your fathers killed. But the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world to this present day, will be required of this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Truly I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Woe unto you Pharisees and so-called experts in the religious law, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You wouldn't enter in yourselves, and those who tried to enter, you hindered. Well, after all of that, Jesus wound up with more religious leaders wanting him dead. And all of that was in Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus continued speaking boldly against the religious leaders, and he got more intense as he went on, and he did it knowing they were listening, even though he was addressing his disciples. He warned that all religious hypocrisy would be exposed, all of it. He comforted the 70 against fears of persecution from the religious leaders while reassuring them that they don't have any reason to be afraid, and if anyone should be afraid, it's them. And knowing the religious leaders were comforting themselves financially, Jesus gave the parable of the rich fool who invested all of his income in a stockpile that would last him for decades, not realizing that he wasn't going to be alive for decades. Matter of fact, he was going to die that very night. Then Jesus repeated what he had said before about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Which, by the way, folks, we seek his righteousness, not ours. We don't find the kingdom through our own righteousness. We find it seeking God in his righteousness. But Jesus repeats what he said about investing in the kingdom rather than investing in everything that's going on down here. Whether it's finances, entertainment, politics. It's okay to be involved in those things, but it's not okay to be invested in those things. They don't, or at least they shouldn't form our identity. I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I'm an adopted son of the coming King. When he gets here, there will be no separation of church and state. There will be no elections. And every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. I'm invested in that kingdom. It's coming. Whether people are ready for it or not, it's coming. Don't know when it's coming, but it's coming. And when it does, it will not be moved. It will not expire. Invest in that. Right after his reviewed teaching on seeking the kingdom, Jesus gave the parable of the expectant steward. The whole point of that parable was to always be ready, expecting Jesus' return. We've got a lot of churches today that are a lot like the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They look around and get aggravated with Christians who are into prophecy. Now, they may sound religious, but they don't want Jesus to come back. They're not ready, they're not watching, they're not excited. They don't even want people thinking about the return of Jesus. They'll mock Christians who do think about that. Boy, if that doesn't tell you where we are in history, I don't know what will. And then Jesus gave the parable of the faithful steward, in which he equates moment-by-moment expectancy of his return as behavior that is faithful. But then Jesus gave us several warnings of discipleship. Discipleship will unfortunately separate families, people who take God seriously, who take his word seriously, who take their relationship with God seriously, are often misunderstood. They're shunned, even by close family members. Expect it. Don't be surprised when it happens. Christians who pay attention to the signs of the times are also mocked by most Christians today, even though Jesus commanded us to be watchful and ready. Watchful for what? For signs that indicate where we are in prophetic history. God doesn't want us caught off guard. Now, we can't schedule it. We can't pinpoint a date. There's no way to figure that out. That's why we pay attention to signs. Jesus rebuked those who couldn't discern the signs of the times toward the end of Luke chapter 12. And then in Luke chapter 13, Jesus gave a parable of the fig tree, which represented Israel. And actually, the parable of the fig tree is not a single parable. It's a series of parables. But in Luke chapter 13, he gave the first part. Just like the fig tree in the parable, the land of Israel had their Messiah living in it for three years, and yet no fruit had been born. So after those three years, the fig tree was ready to be uprooted, but Jesus asked the Father, let's give it some more time, and then afterwards, if there still isn't any fruit, then you can cut it down and out. Israel did not recognize Jesus as their king. Individuals within Israel did, but the national authorities and the religious authorities did not during Jesus' generation. So sometime later, Jesus will curse a fig tree and kill it, signifying that Israel is cursed. But what's amazing about this, folks, is that there will be a fig tree resurrection. And later, when Jesus gives that parable, it will be a prophecy. And what's amazing about that, folks, is that just as Jesus cursed the fig tree, Israel fell in 70 AD. And just as the fig tree was to be resurrected, Israel was resurrected in 1948 but they've only been resurrected physically. Spiritually, they're not there yet. But anyway, I'm jumping way ahead, getting off track here. Toward the end of Luke chapter 13, Jesus healed a crippled woman on the Sabbath day again, so it got a rise out of the religious leaders. Well, you and I might think that's funny. Jesus wasn't laughing. And he repeated the kingdom parables of the mustard seed and the woman hiding leaven and three measures of meal, all representing both a process and a prophecy. Which shows that when God plants truth, it grows into something so huge that eventually it becomes overtaken by bureaucracy, hypocrisy, and satanic false doctrine. I'm summing it up quickly, but that's the gist of it. And then in the latter half of John chapter 10, Jesus goes back to Jerusalem, goes to the temple, and the religious leaders are waiting to harass him as soon as he gets there. But he reminds them that his sheep hear his voice. And he tells them, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. So it's kind of like a threat or a promise. He sees the religious leaders there as a threat to his sheep, and he's letting them know, I'm the one that gives my sheep eternal life, not you. They will never perish, and neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father which gave them to me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. And with that statement they pick up stones to kill him again and as usual somehow Jesus manages to disappear in the crowd and wind up somewhere else outside their reach. So Jesus left Jerusalem and went beyond the Jordan where John used to baptize people before King Herod had him beheaded and Jesus taught there and many believed in him. But then he journeyed back toward Jerusalem later, and Jesus was asked by one of the disciples about the coming kingdom. Knowing that it didn't look like Israel was going to accept Jesus as their king, he asked Jesus, Lord, will only a few be saved? And Jesus gave a pretty grim picture of the generation he was living in and said to those listening, you guys, you guys, strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. This coincides with what Jesus had said earlier about a time that was coming when he would be gone and those left behind would not be able to go where he was going. Jesus could have stayed behind and been the king, but that's not the way Israel wanted it. And then speaking of the distant future, when Jesus does return and establish the kingdom, Israel will be the capital of the kingdom just the way God planned it. But Jesus said, when that happens, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when they see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God while they're thrust out. People will be coming from the east, from the west, from the north and from the south, and they shall sit down in the kingdom of God. But there are many who are last now who will be first then, and there are many who are first now who will be last then. But then Jesus, as he ponders all of this, he looks out at Jerusalem, he thinks about their immediate future, its fall in 70 AD, the persecution and the wandering for the next 1800 years, the Spanish Inquisition, the Nazi Holocaust. Jesus becomes overwhelmed and falls down on his knees to cry and says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills prophets and stones them that are sent to you. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not let me. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and verily I say unto you, you shall not see me again until the time comes when you shall say, Blessed is he that comes. In the name of the Lord. Fortunately folks. They will say. Blessed is he that comes. In the name of the Lord. One day. And that's it folks. We're caught up to date. Next week. We will be in Luke chapter 14. Until then. We're out of here. Take care.